everyone, and welcome to season two of the Career Navigators podcast, where we bring you even more stories of academics navigating their careers outside of academia. In the coming episodes, we get to know some well-traveled navigators and their sometimes unexpected journeys. You can find our episodes on every major podcast platform or on anchor.fm. Please connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at CareerNVIGators for more information and updates. All links will be in the show notes. I am your host, Nikki van Teilingen-Bakker, now with an added PhD. Together, we can set our compass for a career outside of academia. So let's get into it. Today, I'm joined by Christina Popova, who did a PhD at the Max Planck in Germany, after which she decided she wanted to move to London to work in science communication. She then made the unconventional move back to academia as a postdoc and finally came into her current position as a trainer. She shares the ins and outs to prepare for a job in science communication and how she helps academics become better communicators in general. This interview was recorded in front of a live audience as part of the Max Planck Career Evolution web series, so you might hear that mentioned here and there. Enjoy! Let's get started. Let's talk to Christina. Christina, could you tell us a little bit about your background and and especially your academic background and how you decided what motivated you to switch to science communication? Sure. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really, really excited to talk to all of you guys. And yeah, so my academic background, I started by doing my diploma study in Moscow. So I'm actually from Russia. And I did my PhD at the Max Planck Institute for Biochemistry in Munich. And that was, if anybody knows, that was at the lab of Professor Ulrich Hartel, which works on protein folding, which is a very, very fundamental kind of research. It was a really exciting project, but kind of not really related to real life, if you like. So I think my transition and my decision to leave academia was quite gradual. It took me a while to figure out what I want, and I think it's only became clear to me maybe in the last couple of years of my PhD, perhaps mainly even in the last year. And it was not a straightforward decision. And it took me a long time to actually even figure out what's out there. I think this is probably the question that a lot of you have. And this is definitely the question that I had because I was doing the super fundamental project. It was super exciting but it had no connection to the outside world. I had no idea what was out there. And I think it all began with me thinking, okay, so what's in front of me and what do I really like? I think this is how the decision ultimately was taken in the end because I started thinking about the things I like and I realized that I like science. I do think that bench work is quite exciting, but what was what I didn't really like was this straightforwardness and the rigidity of the career path in academia. I knew exactly what's going to happen. I knew that I'm going to get my PhD, I'm going to get my postdoc, then I'm going to publish some papers, I'm going to fight for a junior professor, then I'm going to have to fight for tenureship, and then kind of this is it. So what I'm seeing in front of me, what you see is what you get. And I think I was really, really curious to explore other options. And I was also part of the theater group at the time. And I really liked the interaction part with other people. And I liked talking to people, writing about science, which especially came up towards the end of my PhD when I started writing my thesis. I was like, oh, this is really cool. I really like that. So I started looking at different career options. And 
of course, one of the obvious ones was science communications and writing. And it took me a while to figure out even how to switch. I Googled a lot. I looked at different blogs. I saw that, okay, the most traditional path, again, and I was thinking in a very straightforward, traditional way, because this is how academia works, right? PhD, postdoc, whatever. So I was thinking in exactly the same way about the industry jobs. So what do I get? Where do I get next? So I decided, okay, science journalism sounds like something that I could possibly do. And I started looking for jobs in science media companies. And I also wanted a job where I could learn as much as possible about the business world and have a variety of tasks. And this was another thing which also kind of, well, which made the decision a little more difficult, let's say, because of the, a lot of the jobs that you look at, they have this very clear box. This is what you're going to be doing. And this is it. And I think this is also what scares PhD students very often that you look at jobs posted out there and you feel like, oh my God, I'm just going to be put in this tiny, teeny, tiny box. And I don't want that. So my solution to this was, okay, I'm going to look for jobs in startups and small and small enterprises, see what I can get and see where I can go from there. I didn't really have my career my career path kind of planned 20 years ahead, but I was like, okay, my next step, I want to work for a startup and I want to do science communications in, in the form of writing. And I started sending cold applications, funny enough, and I got a job with a cold application in one of the startups in London. And this is how the transition happened. Not straightforward, but I feel that there was a little, there was a lot of luck there was a bit of luck involved, but this was also due to a lot of hard work that's been put into it. Let's say that. Yeah, for sure. But it, it seems fairly interesting. So you had narrowed down at least more or less what you wanted to do, what kind of setting you wanted to do it and where you wanted to do it, which uh, very specifically seemed to be London. So that's nice. Um, that's a good start. My first question would kind of be... You know, how do you get into it? Because the, the chances are fairly small that with one cold email or one cold call, you can you can get a job, right? Like, how would you either get the right experience to kind of boost your CV and, and get noticed? Or how would you build the network or both of those together? I suppose they kind of go go together. Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel that, so I'm going to answer it in two different ways. One is that when I was applying for a job, that was 2014, and social media was on the rise. However, it wasn't as prevalent as I feel it is nowadays, and it wasn't as widely used. So the way I went, the way I went about it, I was like, okay, so I want to be a science journalist. So how can I even, so like, how can I get into it? So I looked around. I looked at all possible blogs that I could find. I've read all possible books that I can read. And I decided I'm just going to go and try out things like that within my academic community. And what I started doing was I went to several conferences. And when I would go to a conference, I would just walk around and be like, hey, I'm a science journalist, which was a very naive and very silly thing to say at the time. But I felt like I just wanted to say it because I wanted to be that. And I was like, yeah, I would really love to write something about your research. Could you tell me what you're doing? So I collected some information from, dis from different places, from different people. And then I wrote whatever I could at the time with my knowledge and skills, which I thought would be science news articles, 
based on different people's research. Of course, some people didn't want to really talk to a journalist at a conference. Some people were very excited. And this way, I started building my portfolio of writing samples. It wasn't very big, but there was a bunch of them. Then I also found a PR agency in the US, which I don't think it exists anymore. It was kind of an open PR platform where anybody could submit a press release and that press release would then be out there uh, ready to be used by the media. I didn't even know the difference yet between PR and actual journalism, but I was like, this is something that I can get into it. So I'm going to get into it. I created the profile and I also submitted some of my articles onto it. And that gave me the professional portfolio as like as professional as I could get it at the time. And from there, I actually literally just went onto a web page which listed all of the London startups. I put the search term science in there and I looked at every single one which had anything to do with science. And I sent them a cold email saying, hey guys, I see what you're doing. I have this and this experience, this and this skills. I'm really excited and I feel like maybe I could contribute to you in this way. And I think what really helped me was that I looked at them individually and I didn't send just a copy-paste email. I always tried to look at, okay, what are they doing? What can I contribute to them? And I had a surprisingly high amount of responses. A lot of them were no, mainly because these are startups. They don't have the money. They may not be looking for someone. And then I stumbled upon one startup who literally responded to me within two hours. They're like, oh my God, you have this amazing profile. You have done a PhD and you are in academia. And we're actually looking for someone who could do the writing for us, but we also have a different side to our work. So how about we talk? And this is how it started. And I think the reason I actually got the job was because it wasn't purely science journalism, what they were looking for was somebody who could write their regular column called Insights. And that would be all kinds of original content on the intersection of science and business. But they also wanted someone to help them understand and position their AI-based search engine on the market. And the AI that they were developing was meant to be a knowledge discovery engine. And because they were looking for someone with these two kind of skill sets, I think this is how I found my match because I don't think I would have been able to get a just a science journalism job with the little experience that I had, but they gave me a chance because I had another skill set which was also useful. So I ended up wearing two hats. One was business development and the other was writing. And in the first couple of years, I focused more on writing. And in the last year, as Brexit came along and they decided to pivot a little bit and become more of a software company. I was involved more in the business development. And this is eventually why I also moved out of this company. And I wanted to come back to Germany after that for like personal reasons. But the, but this is a, this in a nutshell was my first job. Nowadays, in terms of network, I think you do need a lot more me social media presence. I didn't have social media presence back then, and it wasn't that important. I think nowadays you really need to kind of engage in conversations online, either post something, share relevant content, but also social media allows you a lot more exploration nowadays, which I didn't have back then. Because on social media, you can simply write to someone on LinkedIn and say, hey, I am really interested in moving into the space. I see that you have a position in the field where where I would like to land. 
could we possibly have a 15 minute chat? I would really love to understand what you do for your day to day job and what kind of requirements are there. And the important thing here is to make sure that you say, I'm not going to ask you for a job. I am just here to understand what you're doing and how one could possibly land a job. But this is an informational interview. So it's a little different nowadays, but I think it's also a bit easier nowadays. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's of course, if, if you happen to land a job after your informational interview because it's a match, great. But yeah, I, I agree with the approach that one shouldn't be too aggressive in terms of I'm only going to talk to you if you potentially <laughs> have a job ready for me. So um, I think that's a good tip. Always um, reach out on LinkedIn with a note explaining who you are and, and uh, what you would like to talk about. And most people are, are fairly happy to just accommodate you, either write you back, answer your questions or set up a, a quick coffee chat. And I feel like that has worked well for many people that I've talked to. Before we go into the day-to-day of, of your job in, in London, I would like to ask you one or two more questions kind of about the job search uh, for uh, science communication jobs. So in, in your perspective, like what kind of science communication jobs are out there? Because there's quite a lot of different things. There could be, you know, actual actually being a science communicator in the sense that you know, let's say the classic sort of people that you would see on YouTube, television, reaching out and, and talking about science in the in layman's term, let's say. Um, but it doesn't sound like yours was necessarily like that. There's obviously the written version, science journalism. Um, maybe you could think about, you know, um, scientific writers who are also in a way science communicators, not necessarily of their own work, but others. So what, what kind of things are out there in, in your perspective and, and what should people look for? Like what are kind of the keywords that you should then type into Google, let's say? Yeah, that's a very, very important question. So let's start with journalism. Journalism jobs are really difficult to get. And I think nowadays they're even more difficult to get than before because Let's face it, newspapers are struggling to adapt to the digital world and they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to earn money. Therefore, classical journalism jobs, they're not dying. I think they're just in a temporary crisis at the moment. It would probably get better once they figure out the right business model. But at this point, it is possible to land a science journalism job but you would need a way stronger portfolio of samples. You would probably need to take some additional workshops and you would most likely need to start with an internship, which I've also heard is possible to get through cold outreach. And again, cold outreach is always a game of numbers. You will write to maybe 10 or 20 people, one will respond. So it's you have to be very proactive in that respect, but you might land an internship in a, in a newspaper. So that's that's one possibility. Limited job opportunities. However, um, there is also, when it comes to science communications, I think what's most important nowadays is science communications for institutions, for research, for research institutions, for universities. Everybody is trying to create a public outreach program. 
And museums as well, by the way, as I've realized recently, museums are also entering this space because museums are also now trying to become less of a passive exhibition spaces and more of a active public engagement spaces. So you would have jobs like this in public sector. So these won't be companies. These would be universities, research institutes, and the jobs, the keywords you could search for is something like public outreach officer, public outreach coordinator, science communicator. Also, sometimes these jobs are called science journalists, even though it's not actually journalism, it's more of a kind of PR and outreach job. Social media manager is another aspect of communications. And it's also very big nowadays. You do need to have your own presence and understanding of social media if you were to go for those jobs. But these are also entry-level jobs. And from there, you could possibly advance within the company and you could even move horizontally because it depends on what company you're, you're working for. Then there is another side of communications and public outreach, which is not related to writing. That would be event organization. So that is, that is something that you could also look at because there you would be communicating a lot. It won't be in a classical sense that I go and I give talks about science. You may be organizing events for institutions. You would be designing experiences for visitors in the museum. The job would probably also involve some writing, but I feel like science communications job nowadays, they require you to, to wear multiple hats. And that's kind of... That, that, in my opinion, is new reality. So coming back to keywords, I would say public outreach coordinator, public outreach officer, communications officer, public relations, um, social media manager, community manager, which also most of the time involves, involves social, social media and possibly event organization or event organization. So these would be the main keywords I would look at if I were to start looking for a job now. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Would you say in your current experience that LinkedIn is the right social media platform to kind of focus on when, when looking for jobs or are there other uh, platforms that would be worth investing your time in or anyone's time? Yeah, so to, yeah, actually, yes and no. That's the right answer to the little, that's my personal answer to this question. Yes, in terms of, it's the biggest career-related platform where you can connect with a lot of people, pick up conversations, and this is where your professional profile should be. However, I feel that for science communications, you should also be active on Twitter nowadays because Twitter is the biggest space where discussions happen around science nowadays, and all of the companies are also on Twitter. So if you want... In, so if you want to create your presence and if you want people to notice you, these are the two platforms I would go for. I think there's also a lot of stuff happening on Instagram and people are also getting on TikTok nowadays. But the two biggest ones that you should focus on, I would say, is LinkedIn and Twitter. And Twitter is where you would engage in discussions, which is where you maybe would post some, share some links to the things you've done, maybe post some tips, voice your opinion. And LinkedIn, I would use for professional networking, getting in touch with people, picking up conversations around actual job search. That's that's how I would go about it. Yeah, I think that's that's fair enough. That's how I how I would have uh, seen it as well. So then um, the famous question that we were talking about before as well 
in in the sense of course it depends on who your audience is and and how you're communicating science um but how would you say the job prospects are and your personal experience with adapting the way that you communicate um in a language that that might not be your native language so a language can be learned that's the one thing that's the number one thing i want to say a language can be learned and just the fact that you're not a native speaker it doesn't mean that you can't get a job as a communicator in the english language space be aware that you might face some glass ceilings in some cases although i think the amount of such companies is decreasing nowadays one of the conservative industries that i know which are very stuck with hiring native speakers only these are publishing however do you want to work in publishing or not that's up to you in my experience i am not a native speaker and i got a job in london in the space where i would think oh my god why would they even want me to go and write something for them i don't think i even like i should deserve even a chance to do that and interestingly when i arrived to london and when i started going to all the different public outreach events i met other journalists from smaller companies who were also non native speakers and i was like oh wow okay so it's actually not such a big deal and i in my 3 and 1/2 years in london i don't think i have once heard from anyone a phrase like oh you're applying for a communications job and we're only looking for native english speakers it literally didn't come up at all and as far as i know it's also a little similar in the us it seems to be something to do with the non native english speaking countries where maybe native speakers have advantage because they're native speakers and therefore the myth proliferates but actually i would say ignore that if you do meet people who say oh we only hire native speakers well that's okay you don't want to work for them but it's definitely it's not a glass ceiling and you can definitely get a communications job without being a native english speaker having said that of course if you are in germany for a lot of jobs you may need german language so do learn this language early on if you can take any chance to learn because even if you don't end up writing in german you will still end up communicating potentially with clients potentially with colleagues so put an effort to learn the language but don't be afraid to think that if you're not a native speaker that's going to stop you from getting a job that's just not true i think it's the case with any job if the requirement is to speak a certain language especially when it comes to communicate like communication if you want to work in german in science communication it's probably important to be able to communicate properly <laughs> in german um yeah but yes but also you can you can learn because what's actually required of you is to be able to not make mistakes and it takes effort and it takes time and to be honest even i make mistakes in my first drafts but i have developed my own system for how to correct myself and eliminate those mistakes so that when i send in the final text it is grammatically correct and I have my own way of editing the text and googling for words making sure that the meaning is correct meaning sure that the grammar is correct and it's okay if it's not perfectly correct at the first try but if you get yourself to the point where you can edit yourself and turn in the final copy which is grammatically correct and doesn't have 
like strong stylistic mistakes that an native like that a native speaker would never do. I think that's it. That's kind of the level that you're aiming at. Mm. So you just need to somehow know how to beat the system uh, in that sense, I guess, or how to work the system in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you kind of have to have to be the system a little bit, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, that's that's good to know, and and I'm glad to hear that that you somehow managed to do that. Um, so then I was wondering, in terms of let's say most of the the listeners right now, they will either obtain a PhD or perhaps they are already in a postdoc, so they have obtained a PhD. In that case. Um, I guess the first part of the question is how would one leverage their academic background and the fact that they have a PhD and, and, you know, how does that relate to perhaps a, um, a, a science communications company hiring someone with a PhD or a scientific background versus someone who actually has a more uh, professional communications background? How would you kind of make yourself stand out? How would you sell your your PhD-ness, so to say. Yeah. So that's a, that's that's a, that's the really tricky part. However, I think that you could sell your expertise and knowledge of the field, and say that if you are applying for a, I don't know, technical communications job, they very often ask you for experience for knowledge of a of a certain topic of a certain, I don't know of a certain field of science. And if that's a match, this is where you can strongly sell yourself by saying that I'm an expert in this field. I understand this field very well. I have worked on a number of projects and I'm aware of the latest trends in the field. And I also have a strong interest and a little bit of experience in communications. I'm willing to learn and I will bring my... um, my strong creative thinking and problem problem solving mindset and skill set to that, which will probably be of value to your company. But this is super tricky because with communications, a PhD itself is difficult to sell. You have to turn it around and say that you know a lot about a particular topic or like I sold it to the company in London. Rather, Well, it's kind of what they were looking for. I, I said that I since I've worked in science, I understand how what scientists need. I understand what kind of information they're looking for. I understand the struggles when they're searching for information. And therefore, I will be able to help you position your product in a way that it actually solves real problems because I have been there. I have seen those problems myself and I can help you solve them because I know your client better than anyone else probably. So that would be a different way of selling a PhD, if that makes sense. And then in terms of uh, scientific writing, let's say, do you think it's enough to to say that you have experience writing scientific papers or what kind of other types of writing would you recommend uh, Mm. for those kinds of jobs? Yeah, scientific papers won't really count. They will count to some extent, but they won't really count outside of academia. So you could, like the one thing, the kind of experience you need to accumulate is writing for other audiences because this is this would be usually one of the requirements even in the job advert. They would be asking you to be able to adapt your communication style to different audiences. And that means 
maybe you want to write some blog posts. Maybe you want to write something for your institutions, institution. Maybe you want to create a press release for your recent paper. And that would be a different kind of writing. I would accumulate as many writing samples as I can outside of academic manuscripts because this 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 is not the pri this is not the primary thing that's going to sell you like even if you say that I've written a manuscript that's not enough you need you need experience writing for other audiences and to get that experience the probably the best way is to just create an account on Medium because Medium is this blogging platform where you don't need to have your own blog and maintain it and do the marketing because the platform does the marketing for you. So you can just occasionally write different articles and post them. And even if you write once a year, you still have a good chance of that article kind of getting attention from other people because the platform will take care of it. You could also get in touch with people who write blogs more regularly and ask to write a guest post for them. That would also give you kind of a line on your CV that you write guest posts and not just for yourself. See if you can do any kind of voluntary work for, I don't know, maybe, maybe you know someone who has a startup and they need some sort of marketing materials to write for them and they don't have the money. So you can offer them to write something for their website or you can offer them to write a press release. Or you can go to your communications department, the public relations department, and say, hey, we've published this paper, and I know that you want to write a press release. Can I write a press release? And submit it onto your website so that there is my name on that press release. And the more of those different samples you, you, you accumulate, the more of those little lines in your CV you will have. Like, I wrote for this blog. I wrote for this company. I wrote for this, uh, for this purpose, and so on. And that is what ultimately will help you get a job. Academic papers alone, unfortunately, will not. Ah, the other thing that I forgot to mention is medical writing. However, in medical writing, of course, yeah, in medical writing, you need a little bit more knowledge of how clinical trials are done and all of these things like GMP, the clinical trials coordinations, all of these things around it. So that means that not only do you need to be a good writer, but you also need to understand the space, what you're writing for, for which purpose, how this happens. There is, of course, a sub-area of medical writing where you write texts for just lay audiences, explaining how the drug works. But most of the time, your communications will be way more technical. So this will be something between a paper and a blog post. It will be probably in a little in a slightly more relaxed language than you would write a manuscript but it won't be as simple and down to earth as you would write a blog post so for medical writing in addition to acquiring writing skills i would definitely look up some online courses on clinical trials coordinations clinical trials management anything around the topic because they will ask you in your application and during the job interview for the knowledge of that clinical trial space so anything you can on that plus writing experience that's what would get you a job in medical writing and are there any other ways um let's say either through workshops let's say let's keep out your own workshop we'll talk about that a little bit later <laughs> but any other workshops apart from your own and other experiences um that people can kind of look at during their phd or during their academic 
their academic experience to increase their their science communication skills. And this is not only writing, but I would say also presenting, which is obviously your your expertise, let's say. Yeah, so taking like forget forgetting my workshops and whatever I offer, look up any online courses that exist that are around communications, around either presentation skills or generally around the job around the job field that you're looking for. I mean, apart from me, there are a lot of trainers who also offer presentation workshops, storytelling workshops and writing workshops. So all of these kind of things, if you acquire this kind of experience, if you get if you take this kind of training and then get some some, some sort of like certificate out of it, this would add to your CV. So basically when you're taking any trainings, your aim should be getting certificates with the right keywords that will match the keywords in the job application. Coming back to hacking the system, it is actually hacking the system because your CV will, in a lot of cases, be first read by a machine who will be looking for keywords, and then only will it be read by a human if the machine you know, sends the CV through. So anything you're looking for, online courses like, it, I know of one, for example, um, of one journalism course, which is not specifically science journalism, but I think it's a pretty good one, and it's in English. It's called Open School of Journalism, and it's actually, I think it's a German-based company. I think they're in Berlin or somewhere in Europe, and this would be a part-time training at the end of which you will get a pretty solid certificate and they will walk you through all the different modules of news writing, feature writing, and so on. You will also, I think, have a trainer or like a kind of a mentor who would once a month meet with you and discuss your struggles and maybe help you out a little bit. You will get feedback on your writing. And I think that kind of training would be super useful. And that can also help you not only in applying for science journalism jobs, but communication jobs in general. When it comes to like presentations and public speaking, I feel like this is, if we don't take just short workshops, it's really more about just gaining experience and doing some kind of event organization or doing, I don't know, YouTube videos or TikTok videos or podcasts and actually getting out there and speaking and showing people what you can do and gaining a little bit of visibility. Because communications is a very practical field and they will want to see what you've done rather than what you've studied. So I think in this case, getting the right certificate is important, but possibly less important than if you were looking for a job, say, in business development or other areas of industry. So then I would like to ask you, apart from hacking the system, um, if you genuinely want to try to, uh, to improve your, your science communication skills, in your opinion, what is one core skill that one that a academic or a PhD graduate needs to acquire in terms of um, in order to effectively communicate science, uh, no matter the audience, and how do your workshops kind of feed into that? Like, how do you teach that in your workshops? One core skill is actually the public speaking. And public speaking does not necessarily mean um, going out there with the slides. It means being able to communicate yourself effectively 
in a verbal form and in a way that you really adapt to the other people's level and to the other people's language. Because I think the the biggest trouble that I have seen around me when I was in academia myself and now the questions that I get when I teach my workshops is, okay, so like I know how I present my data if I go to like talk at a conference or if I go into a lab meeting, but I have no idea how do I talk to all these people who are not scientists. And I think the core skill here is, I guess it's empathy. It's like being able to place yourself in those people's shoes and understanding what are they looking for? What, what are they expecting? And another term for it in industry would be managing expectations, which means that when you go out there and you talk to someone, it's very important to be able to adapt and tell a story that resonates with them rather than doing this kind of one-way one week communication style, which is what we're used to. We go, we lecture, then we say, okay, any questions, no question, thank you, bye. So you need to be able to switch from lecturing format that we're used to in academia to more of a dialogue format and adapt to the person that you're speaking with. And I don't even know if there is like a particular name for it, but I think this adaptability, being able to empathize with the person on the other side and talk to them in a way that it would resonate with them rather than in a way that you're used to. I think this is the biggest mind shift and this is probably the biggest skill that people that people need. Um, coming back to my workshops, this is pretty much what this is this is kind of the area where I structure my trainings around. I have a workshop on storytelling, and this is where I have taken my experience from the entertainment world, from being in the theater company and also doing acting classes and working with a lot of scripts. So I've actually looked at the way stories are told in the entertainment world, which is kind of another extreme example. And I've tried to bring the elements from there into science communications. And it seems so far to be working quite well. It seems to be actually quite applicable. I know I'm not the only one doing that. There is also another trainer in the US who has gone to film school. He used to be a professor, then he quit after 10 years because he decided academia is not for him, talking about switching rates. And then he went to film school and he started filmmaking, and now he teaches similar kind of workshops. And another thing I teach is, like, I, I have another workshop that I'm preparing currently, which is about how to adapt to your audience. One is about how do you create a story using all those techniques, and the other is how do you actually adapt to your audience. And this is where I'm trying to look at other fields like design thinking and all this human-centered design and things that we have no idea about in academia. But this is, but these are the techniques that can help you place yourself in the in your audience's shoes and then create something that would resonate with them, rather than doing the same academic thing over and over. And I also have another workshop, which is on the basics of journalism. And that is basically about how to write texts that are not an academic manuscript and how do you approach them? Are there any structures, techniques, and so on? So these are all the structures, techniques that journalists use. And this is what I'm trying to bring into the writing space as well. That's very interesting. Like, 
I think that would definitely be workshops that I would sign up for. I think that that is very useful for anyone, um, no matter what uh, your plans in in a science communication career are, yes or no. So kind of coming back to, to that and also what you mentioned in terms of switching, you did something somewhat unusual in the sense that you did a PhD, you went to London to work both in science communication and, and in business development, and then you actually came back to academia to do a postdoc. Uh, so can I ask you, in your opinion, what, how do you think that experience outside of academia um, well, first of all, why did you decide to come back? And second of all, like, how do you think your experience outside of academia potentially made you a better academic? Ooh, yeah, two questions here. So I'll, I'll give you a quick answer to the why. So there was two reasons to that. First of all, uh, the company that I worked for, they decided that they would want, they would like to pivot and become more of a software, more of a software creation company rather than a science media company. So they decided to put the science media platform on hold. And I've worked in this in this business development space for the technology that they've created for about half a year, and then I decided that okay, this is actually I'm going to I'm I'm, I'm slowly beginning to specialize in IT, which is not really something that's which is not really the area where my heart is. So I need something else. And then of course there was also Brexit, and I met my boyfriend who is German. And then the question became, okay, so what do we do? I can't ask him to move to London because he will probably be destroyed here by the immigration system once Brexit happens. So I decided to go back to Germany. And actually, this was really, I think the postdoc was a soul-searching time for me because I have done communications work. I've done some business development work in the company. And I wanted to go back to science and see what can I actually do because my skill set has become really, really broad. And I was struggling to narrow it down and decide what I want. So I decided I'll go to do a postdoc because I want to be back in academia. I want to see how academia has maybe changed or maybe I will see it differently. Maybe it will give me a different experience. I'm going to be open-minded. If things work out, maybe I would actually want to continue the career there because things have changed since my PhD. And if not, I would like to reconnect with the academic world to understand what else can I actually do rather than just trying to jump in the business world and find 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 my little box. So this is why I went to do a postdoc. How the experience outside of academia made me a better academic? Well, um, I think I gained a lot more appreciation for knowledge transfer and the process of knowledge transfer. It also was a somewhat frustrating experience to return to academia and realize that I am back in the bubble and the like I felt so connected to the rest of the world when I was in London in my job and when I came back to academia I realized that this is it like I'm back in the bubble and the bubble doesn't really want to talk to the outside world and the outside world tries to talk to the bubble and the bubble is like uh-uh not going to do that and I've had some experiences when I had a couple of people from London who actually wanted to work with someone in my former institute. And I tried to bring them in touch. And the person in the institute was like, I don't see why I should talk to them. I feel that if I talk to them, this should be classified as consulting and I should be getting money for it. I'm not going to talk to them. There's no point. And yeah, I think... It, it gave me a lot more appreciation for knowledge transfer for all these you know, startup hubs and 
all of the things that entrepreneurship space tries to do and tries to get all this knowledge out of academia, I have so much empathy with them and so much sympathy for what they're doing because it's super hard. And yeah, I guess these are the only things that I could really use when I came back to academia because the rest of my skills, I'm going to be brutally honest, they were actually kind of negated and completely undermined when I returned because everybody was like, oh, yeah, well, you did some of this journalism thing. But anyways, you're back to the real science now. So whatever you've done, you, you it's okay. You're back with us now. So forget what you've done. This is like, it doesn't really matter. This is all not serious. So I hope you didn't forget the serious science. I hope you didn't forget how to pipe it. That's the best answer I can give you. I can give to your question. I think being outside of academia and coming back is probably an advantage if you want to really uh, make the knowledge transfer happen. But we need to be aware that knowledge transfer will only happen if everybody wants it. And perhaps if there are more people who have a little bit of the outside world experience and then come back, then they can change the culture and the perception of knowledge transfer. <laughs> oh, that's fair enough. So then the switch, the switch to academia was more, was more difficult on the side of um, you having to try and match up or academia needing to match up to you again, rather than the actual search. Like, how was it to search for a, a postdoc position, having this, let's say, academic gap in your CV? Uh, difficult, but to my surprise, not impossible. Because when I was applying for a postdoc, I genuinely wanted to do a postdoc. I was genuinely interested and I was going there with an open mind thinking that, okay, maybe I can combine all of my expertise outside of academia with the academic work. As it turned out, um, people who did want to talk to me with my academic gap, they viewed the gap more like, well, probably worse than if I had a baby, I suppose. So for them, it was really a gap. And I think it was a really like it was a goodwill of a person who took me up for a PhD, who sort of forgave me this um, this time of being outside of academia and gave me the second chance in life to do a postdoc. I can say it's not impossible, and definitely you can get a postdoc if you've been outside of academia. So if you leave academia, don't think that this is it. Like you're never going to be able to come back. You will be able to come back, but this will require a little bit of open-mindedness on the side of the professor that you're applying for. Yeah, yeah, I can I can only imagine. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that someone forgave you your betrayal of leaving academia and wanting to come back. But I was very, I was very grateful for that and I'm still grateful for that very much. Good, good. So then I, I'm actually wondering about, um, well, Let's say all three of your positions. So first, the the initial position that you got when you went to London, then the more business development side of that, and then your current your current position as a as a trainer. Um, for all three of those, can you kind of like tell us a little bit about what the day to day look like, what your tasks are like, what you know, what the job is like? Sure. So the first job in the the first job when I was writing this insights column, that was a purely communications job. So that would mean that 
I would be looking for things that people are interested in. I would be scouting social media. I would be looking for different trends and discussions, what kind of topics people are talking about, where would I like to do some research and tell people about it? Who would be the experts in the topic? Can I get in touch with them? What are the article topics that I can that I can put together? So this this would this would take up a good amount of my time. Then I would pitch my ideas to the seniors. And since it was a startup, it was pretty flat hierarchy. I had one person who was above me, and that was our chief science officer. And I would scout social media online everywhere for different topics. And I would also sign up for a lot of press releases, which is where I got my ideas. And then I would come up with this with this idea and say, oh, hey, I think that this is something new that people seem to be talking about, but there isn't much in-depth content on the topic. So I would like to do this and this, and I feel like I could interview this person and this person. What do you think? And then she'd be like, oh, yeah, this is really interesting. Or she'd be like, oh, well, maybe we'll first focus on the other thing, and then you and then, then you could pursue this. They were very open to my ideas, so actually I'm super grateful for that. So I was able to write about very, very many different topics. Then I would go ahead and I would try to contact the experts. Since this was a journalism job, this was basically getting information out of people, if you like. And that would mean writing emails, um, contacting them on social media, saying, hey, so I'm writing this article and I would really love to interview you. Would you have some time? to tell me about maybe what your company is doing, if it's about a company or you seem to be an expert in this topic, can you tell me a little bit about this? Could, can I interview you? So that would be the communication side, which is pretty straightforward. Then I would write up an article. I would send it to my chief science officer who would be like, okay, well, maybe you can change this and this, but otherwise it's good to go. So go ahead and publish. And I would say in terms of like, how day to day would look like. I would I would begin if if I am in the idea development space. I would spend sometimes most of my day just researching the space, like literally just googling around. Then I would pitch my ideas, and then I would spend days writing, interviewing people, submitting my draft to the editor, and then publishing the thing, and then kind of starting all over again, which was pretty cool because the projects were very short term. So I would have like two three weeks to compose to work on one topic and then I'd switch. In terms of business development, they were looking to understand what kind of applications could their product have? How could it be useful? What kind of people would need that? So what I would do, again, part of it would be a lot of online research and understanding who may need this, who may have this kind of problems, what kind of problems exist that can be solved without product. A lot of it, however, was also going to different conferences and, and attending face-to-face -face and online events and literally just walking from stall to stall and picking up a conversation about, oh, hey, what's so like you, you seem to be working on that. And I wonder if you would be, if you have these and these problems or like problems in this space, like knowledge discovery. And I wonder if there is any match between what we're doing and what you're seeking. So this would be the exploration phase where I would go and try to understand what problems the, the potential clients are having. And then I would bring all this knowledge back and say, so it seems, to, it seems to be that people are interested in this and this. Is this something that we can do? Then I would bring those people in touch with my boss and he would then proceed uh, discussing with them if there is any common project that we can do, if there is something that we can do for them or they can do for us and so on. So this is it, it's 
a lot of communication again, but a very different kind of communication. This is not a communication which has which is the which is the means which is the which is the end which is the end product. It's more like you use communications process in order to help drive the business forward by talking to people, understanding what they want, and then matching what we can offer to what they're looking for. Day to day job in my current um, so in my current job, I would say I spend most of my time designing new trainings. And also trying to understand, again, what kind of problems people are having. So like recently, for example, I ran a little exploration study and I posted some things on LinkedIn asking people that if they're interested in talking about science communication space and potential things that they would like to learn, the format they would like to learn in. And I had some really, really nice and interesting, insightful discussions. And what I do from what I do most of the time, I spend most of most of my time designing trainings based on what people want, because what I really like to have is not just a set of kind of not just a catalog of trainings like in a McDonald's menu where you come and you pick, okay, I want a hamburger. No, I want a cheeseburger. But rather, what kind of burger do you want based on what your students are interested in, what your program's interested in? There's also a company I'm currently working with, which is a totally different field of uh, communication trainings because for them it's internal communications. And what they're looking for is how to help their technical team find the common language with the non-technical team, which is again SciComm, but a very, very different one. So most of my time goes on that. A lot of my time also goes on um Social media, not as much at this point, but I have kind of my phases when I may sit down and be like, okay, so what do I write today for like LinkedIn? This is my one post. This is why this is my other post. This is my strategy, figuring out what's what's out there. So actually Googling around, <laughs> like a very, very basic phrases of Googling around and understanding what kind of other trainings are out there, what kind of things that people are interested in nowadays and so on. And of course, just the basic business running experience, like business running activities, like writing up contracts, writing up invoices, calculating quotes, like if somebody wants this particular training by this particular date, how much is it going to cost? Given that I will spend this much time, I may need this much effort in and so on and so on. So it's kind of the most flexible job of all that I have right now. And I would say that most of my time I spend on actually creating the trainings and then some of that time on delivering the trainings and looking at the homework, answering the questions, and then comes social media and the day-to-day -day business running activities. Mm, that's That sounds very exciting though. So then before I ask the final question and, and we wrap up this session, I would like to know your opinion on what the, what are some of the trends that you're seeing now in science communications? What are, what are some of the up and coming potentially positions or um, topics or ways of communicating that, that you know, um, the world is moving towards? The trends I'm seeing is that social media is becoming really, really big. Everybody wants to be on social media, especially companies, especially corporates. And they want to be on social media, not anymore in a way that they regularly post this kind of Let's take McDonald's again, McDonald's style apps, like uh, style adverts, like we have this and this, and this is amazing because so you should come and buy from us. What companies are now looking for, and this is a new trend, they're all looking for, looking to establish their brand and establish a dialogue 
with their customers. So one of the biggest trends is that everybody wants to have at least one specialized person for social media, and that person will be basically the living the living representation of their company. They would be actually on social media holding discussions on behalf of the company because every company now tries to become a little more human on social media. And I think that's a huge space. And yeah, actually talking about courses, I think there's a bunch of courses that I know there is one from Google, which is like social media marketing and something like that. Um, any courses on branding and marketing in general, if you want to get into this space, that would be super useful to take. And again, if you get the certificate out of it, even better. But try to kind of at least showcase that you're doing it somewhere in social media by maybe implementing the techniques or writing about it. So I think that's one of the biggest trends. And I mean, podcasts are becoming super big. So communications is now moving out of the written space into the verbal space, which is either podcasts or videos, TikTok, YouTube, all of these kind of things. And yeah, and I think there is also the new and another new trend is that the less text, more visuals. So a lot of communications now happen in a form of infographics. So if you could find any course on infographics and learn a little bit of basics of like design, it, you don't need to become a graphic designer in a hardcore sense of it. But if you can learn to create nice infographics and showcase that, that's another trend that, that a lot of companies are looking for. But I don't think that you will get a job just um, just as an infographic creator, but this is another, but it's one of the skills in your toolbox that I think would really help you to stand out. Okay. I, I think that's some, some great advice for, for people who are interested in pursuing anything related to science communication to keep an eye on all of these courses and all of these, uh, these trends and, and platforms that they might, you know, want to get on uh, to get some practice in before they, before they really get started. All right. Then um, I'm going to ask you the last question and um, that's really when you look back at all your experience that you have now compared to, um, you know, when you were in your PhD and, and kind of the feelings and experiences you had then, what is one core piece of advice that you would give to your former academic self, let's say? I think the one piece of advice I would give to myself is to be more proactive and less shy in terms of really getting in touch with people and picking up conversations. Because I think that's that's something I was very very insecure about. I was I didn't even know how to start discussions, and so and the very term networking for me was just scary because I'm also a little on the introverted side most of the time. So for me, getting in touch with someone I don't know is like oh my god, what is it? So that I think the one piece of advice I would give to myself: don't be afraid of people you don't know, and don't be afraid of a rejection because after 20 rejections you may you may get a yes which is exactly what you're looking for so be more proactive and don't be afraid of getting in touch with people you don't know and ask them questions about things you want to learn and maybe out of 10 people one will respond but it it's worth it it pays off 
I love I love the fact that you that you are saying that you are more introverted and you were afraid to talk to people and you ended up doing the most extroverted jobs ever science communication, business development, and being a trainer. So I think that is a, a great inspirational <laughs> uh, career path for anyone uh, who might feel the same way. So with that, um, I would like to thank you very much for this for this really helpful talk. Um, I hope I manage, we manage to answer everyone's questions as much as possible. If not, if and anyone wants to connect with you, where can they find you and, and uh, potentially send you a message? Best way to find me on Link. You guys are welcome to connect with me there. And if you have any questions, I will try to answer them. I am also still very, very happy to continue to talk to people in terms of learning what you guys need, what kind of trainings you may like. So if you do connect with me on LinkedIn and if you'd like to continue the conversation and if you'd like to help me a little bit to understand what the needs in the space are and so on, you're welcome to have, I would love to have a little chat with you. And there is a post I wrote on LinkedIn you may find where it's described in a little more detail. But in general, if you have any questions, get in touch with me and we'll see if I can solve them. Obviously, I can only offer you my very, very personal perspective and my kind of limited advice on what I know, but I'll try to do my best. And I hope it was useful, whatever I said. I don't know what I even said for this one hour. I just hope it was useful. Well, I learned a lot and I hope everyone else did as well. Uh, again, thank you so much for agreeing to, to chat to us today. It was really, really great and really inspiring to talk to you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. And that's it for this interview. Be sure to let us know what you think of the show through our social media channels at Career NVI Gators. And check the show notes for more information on the podcast and the guests. I would like to thank Johan Frieden for making our logo, Gustavo Carrizo for editing, mixing and sound design. Don't forget to add a note when you connect with me or the guests on LinkedIn. And thank you all for listening. As always, see you later, navigators.